You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing the Chicago Tylenol murders. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. Happy to have you here on our 27th episode. I had not even noticed, I think it was last week, um, that I've been doing this for half a year. So thank you if you've been here since the very beginning, joining me every week to discuss these intriguing unsolved mysteries. I very much appreciate all of my ride or die loyal listeners. Um, if this is your first time or if you've only listened to a couple of um, episodes, thank you so much for giving me a chance. I appreciate you as well. I hope that you will continue to come week after week. Um, I just want to do a bit of housekeeping before we officially start our case. If you are like me and you want visual aids, um, we do have an Instagram account. It's at Mystery Still Unsolved. There you can see photos of the people, location sometimes, and things or objects that we discuss in the cases. Um, you can also engage with me and one another. You can let us know your thoughts theories, and opinions. Also, don't be hesitant to reach out to me in the DMs. I love taking recommendations of cases that you want me to cover. Also, okay, so the other day while researching for a case, I was thinking about doing and then I eventually scrapped because there was just like zero information about it. I stumbled upon a podcast and I'm not going to mention the name of the podcast because I'm about to slam it a tiny bit, not too much, just a little. Um, Basically, I was frustrated with this podcast because the episode itself was like two hours long And that to me just seems like a really long time. And also the first 45 minutes consisted of the three hosts like making super lame jokes about tacos and like talking about their days. But then I wondered, do other people, like do listeners like having that much banter and introduction before an episode? Personally, I like to kind of get to the meat of the case right away because I assume that As much as you guys love me, you don't want to hear me talk and talk and talk all day, but now I'm not so sure. So if you would comment on the Instagram post I have for today's post and just tell me kind of how much of an intro you guys want, that would be super helpful for me. I guess let me know if you prefer a shorter intro, mostly sticking to the facts, or if you enjoy a long intro because my preference is not always the consensus of the masses. So Thanks for any um, feedback in advance. If I don't get any feedback, I'm just going to assume that you guys already think I'm awesome and I'll just keep doing it the same way that I've always done. So, all right. When I first began researching for this case, I did so because I was convinced that this was not an unsolved uh, case. I distinctly remember a Forensic Files episodes regarding this case. Well, turns out there was more than one psychopath who poisoned people using Tylenol back in the 80s because that case that I was thinking of was an entirely different one that had occurred somewhere in New England. The person responsible for that case ended up being a 
disgruntled wife who had poisoned her husband, but in order to avoid detection, she poisoned a few more bottles at a store so other people besides her husband would die and it would be written off as some like national tragedy or regional tragedy instead of what it really was this lady wanting to murder her husband and she was willing to sacrifice other innocent people in her attempt to do it what a sweetie am i right However, the case we'll be talking about today occurred in Chicago, and to this day, the mystery is still unsolved. So before I start, I want to give credit to a podcast that I listen to a lot. They provided a lot of information regarding my case today, so thank you to them, Kristen Crusoe and Brandy Egan. If you have not listened to Let's Go to Court, well... You are truly missing out. They are incredible. I listen to them, and especially like during quarantine, I feel like I'm hanging out with friends, even though I've never met them before. And they might think that it's creepy that I'm referring to them as friends, but I literally have like gotten close to them uh, just by listening to them all the time during quarantine and like being socially isolated. And when I listen to them, I just like feel happy. So if you want to listen to a podcast like that, go check them out. They're so super, super funny, and they're great. All right. Now that I've given them a shout out, let's get into today's case, shall we? It was September 29th, 1992. Sorry. I wrote 1892. It's 1982 in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, which is technically a suburb of Chicago. 12-year-old Mary Kellerman woke up early in the morning because she wasn't feeling too great. She went into her parents' bedroom and told them that she was feeling sick. So they gave her an extra strength Tylenol and sent her back to bed. They weren't going to make her go to school that day. Then at 7 a.m., Mary's parents found her dead on the bathroom floor. Her death was obviously tragic and completely unexpected. I mean, she was only 12. She had only complained of a stuffy nose and a sore throat, and now she was gone. Initially, doctors believed she might have died from an aneurysm or a stroke, which is pretty weird for a girl of Mary's age. Meanwhile, in Arlington Heights, which is an adjacent suburb of Chicago, paramedics rushed to the home of 27-year-old Adam Janice. They rushed him to the hospital, getting him there as quickly as they could, but it was too late. He was already dead, perhaps from a heart attack. Adam's family was heartbroken, obviously. They were not prepared for their 27-year-old family member to die. He had so much life left to live, and he was a relatively healthy guy. So this really turned their world upside down, and they were left with so many questions. Adam's family gathered at Adam's home to figure out what to do. They wondered where and how to even start and process through their grief. Family members were crying. They were distraught. They were exhausted. At some point throughout the day, Adam's younger brother, Stanley, and Stanley's wife, Teresa, both got headaches. And if they're anything like me, they get crying headaches. Whenever I cry, I get like the worst headache, which is why I never cry. One, because I'm a redhead and I have no heart or soul. And two, because I don't want to get a headache. So they went to Adam's bathroom and into his medicine cabinet where they found a hefty, just barely opened bottle of extra strength Tylenol. So Teresa and Stanley both took some. Basically, immediately, 
Stanley and Teresa collapsed to the floor. Adam's family members were in shock. One family member called an ambulance, and for the second time that very day, an ambulance rushed members of their family to the hospital, and unfortunately, this trip to the hospital would not serve a different outcome. Stanley died that day, and Teresa died a day later. Was this family cursed? Were they just extremely unlucky? Obviously, these events were tragic, but they were also weird AF. Adam was 27, Stanley was 25, and Teresa was 19. They had all died these strange, sudden, inexplicable deaths on the very same day. It was so odd that Dr. Thomas Kim was like, what the heck is going on here? At first, he thought maybe there could have been poisonous gas in the home, perhaps carbon monoxide or perhaps even just like some super intense mold spores, but he reached out to a well-respected poison expert, and this expert listened as Dr. Kim went over the three medical files of these individuals and said, you know, this doesn't really sound like carbon monoxide poisoning or some type of poisonous gas to me. But you know what it does sound like, though? Cyanide poisoning. Dr. Kim took what he had learned from the poison expert. He took some blood samples from Adam, Stanley, and Teresa, and he sent them out to the lab, which right now we can get our results back in like two to three days. I cannot even imagine how long it would take back in the 80s, so put a pin in that. Meanwhile, across town, some firefighters were shooting the shit at the firehouse, and they were like, man, there's been four really bizarre deaths recently. They knew that Mary Kellerman had taken Tylenol before her death. Somehow they had found out about that. But they were not familiar with Adam, Stanley, or Teresa's case. So they took it upon themselves as incredible public servants and contacted a paramedic friend that had been there for the other three deaths. And he basically said, Hey man, listen, I know that this is pretty random, but by any chance had your three patients recently taken extra strength Tylenol before they all died? And the paramedic was like, yeah, they actually had. Why do you ask? So by this point, the firefighters are like, holy crap, I think we're onto something here. So they called the cops and the cops rushed to Adam and Mary's home to get the extra strength Tylenol and conduct tests on it. The next day, the Cook County toxicologist examined the Tylenol bottles and he found that the bottles contained 65 milligrams of cyanide, which is more than 10,000 times the amount needed to kill the average person. Later that same day, the blood samples from Adam, Stanley, and Teresa came back and it confirmed what they already knew. All of their victims had been poisoned. All right, so the pieces were coming together, and even fairly quickly, considering these were supposedly the first four deaths, I mean, who the hell knows, but not fast enough, unfortunately. Um, Apparently, in another area of Chicago, a 27-year-old woman named Mary Renner had just given birth to her son, and she was in terrible pain because having a human hurts really bad. So she took an extra strength Tylenol and unfortunately she too passed away. That same day with Mary Renner, a 35-year-old woman named Paula Prince, 
who was a flight attendant, had just gotten home from, like, a shift. I guess she had, like, um, I don't know what it's called, but I know that there's a word for it. It's, like, when a flight attendant leaves her home base and then, like, goes and then, like, comes back but does, like, a couple of times. So she's going to the same location multiple times. There's a word for it. I just cannot think of it. My, like, brain is shot. Anyways, she was later found dead in her apartment, and she had also taken Tylenol. Then, 25-year-old Mary McFarlane died suddenly, and she too had taken Tylenol. So over a shockingly short amount of time, seven people in total in the greater Chicago area had died after taking poisoned extra-strength Tylenol. Investigators didn't know who was poisoning the Tylenol or why they were poisoning the Tylenol or how many stores or cities in America had been contaminated, But they knew one thing. They had to stop people from taking Tylenol. All right. So obviously the story went nationwide because even though all of the cases thus far had been in the Chicago area, that didn't mean that other cities hadn't also been affected. They didn't know how widespread this thing was. But they knew for certain that Chicago was getting just slammed. So police officers drove around Chicago metropolitan areas and suburb neighborhoods with megaphones and basically pleaded and ordered people in the community to throw away all of their Tylenol. People were freaking out. Some re- re- some retailers, just to be safe, pulled all of their Tylenol products off the, the shelves and threw them directly into the trash. They did not want to be responsible for selling poisoned Tylenol to consumers. Johnson & Johnson, the parent company of Tylenol, did a massive recall of over 31 million bottles of Tylenol. They also offered a $100,000 reward to anyone who could lead them to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible. How Johnson & Johnson handled the situation is now studied in business schools when students are learning how to handle a crisis. They literally did such an amazing job because what they did with this massive recall was, I mean, they lost upwards of like $100 million, but they did it because they cared more about their consumers than their bottom line. At this point, it was October 1982. People were terrified. And there were thousands of questions, but next to no answers. The FBI was desperately trying to figure out what was going on. They examined manufacturers and factories and determined pretty quickly that this was not an issue that was occurring in factories or the manufacturing process. Instead, it seemed to them much more likely that someone was taking bottles of Tylenol off the shelves in Chicago, opening some of the capsules dumping out their contents, refilling those capsules up with cyanide, and then taking them back to the store and simply putting them back on the shelves. The FBI was able to determine that six stores seemed to be affected. A couple of grocery stores, a few drug stores, like a, like a convenience mart. But who was doing this? FBI behavioral analysis analysts think criminal minds ugh, one of my favorite shows as a teenager it totally got me hooked onto um abnormal psychology i guess my college degree was essentially sponsored by a and e's criminal minds <laughs> anyways behavioral analysts know that as far as poison goes well 
it's us ladies that like the poison, but they also thought this crime was so anonymous and also kind of gave like terrorism vibes, which would make it more likely to be a man. But they were kind of screwed because in the early 80s, most stores didn't have video surveillance and it was much more common to pay for things with cash rather than card. All right, so somehow, I really don't know how, but somehow they had a picture of one of the victims like either buying her Tylenol or just being like in the store and there was a man with a beard nearby. So, I mean, the guy had a beard, so clearly he was the murderer. I mean, duh. You can't trust those beardy ones. They ain't nothing but trouble. Ah, uh, the naivete of the 80s. You gotta love it. Anyways, obviously that seems just absurd these days, but in 1982, they were convinced that their bearded man was their guy and they brought him in for questioning. This bearded man was Roger Arnold. He was a dockhand and he worked at a warehouse that supplied Tylenol to two out of the six stores that had been affected. He was also like an amateur chemist. He had once worked on a project that involved cyanide. When his apartment was searched, they found two one-way tickets to Thailand and a book that described how to kill people by stuffing poison into capsules. Also, he had guns! Doesn't have anything to do with this particular crime, but things were stacking up for the FBI agents. You have the book, the access to cyanide, the guns, the one-way plane tickets, the access to the warehouse that supplied two of the six stores, and let's not forget the most incriminating of all of their evidence, the beard. What more do you need? Okay, so he had a legal possession to the firearms, and that was enough to lock Roger Arnold up for a little while. But Roger wasn't the Tylenol killer. He initially sounded good for it, but there was no real concrete evidence. I mean, he worked at that warehouse, but he wasn't the only employee at that warehouse. Nonetheless, his name got out there, and he became known to the community and the nation at large as the prime suspect in this case, and one of the most horrifying acts of terrorism of all time at that time, so in 1982. I mean, people were panicking and desperately seeking someone to blame. His name was officially cleared by police, but as you can imagine, the damage to Roger Arnold was already done. Roger was getting threatened and harassed by strangers on the street. Roger was none too pleased. One might say Roger was pissed, but it was okay because Roger was pretty sure he knew who had given the police his name a man by the name of Marty Sinclair. So one night, while Roger was out and about, he saw Marty Sinclair. Roger became enraged. Marty had ruined his life, and it was time for Roger to get his revenge on Marty. So he walked right up to Marty, and he shot him point blank in the head, and Marty died instantly. Only. It wasn't Marty. It was just a man who kind of, sort of looked like Marty. The man Roger shot was actually John Sanisha. So Roger was convicted of second-degree murder and given a 30-year sentence for killing a man who was not even the man he had intended to kill. Okay, 
So seven people are dead because they've been murdered by this laced Tylenol. An entire nation is freaking the heck out, and investigators have literally zero, nada, zilch leads to go on. And that's when the folks at Johnson & Johnson received an odd letter. The letter reads as follows. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide into capsules sitting on store shelves, and since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures to save them. If you don't mind the the publicity of these little capsules then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50, and it takes less than 10 minutes to taint an entire bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to the following bank account. Then it provides bank account numbers. Don't attempt to contact the authorities regarding this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo all of the progress that you think you have made. So, Johnson & Johnson read this letter and promptly and smartly handed this letter immediately to the authorities. Then the White House received a letter. In it, the writer said he would continue to kill people with the contaminated Tylenol unless tax policies changed. Yep. With Roger cleared of all wrongdoing, FBI began delving into these letters. The one sent to Johnson & Johnson appeared to have been sent from the heir of Miller Brewing. You know, being an heir to a successful and world-renowned company can be so hard sometimes. They came to this conclusion because this is the person who owned the bank account number that had been provided in the letter. But the heir insisted that he was being framed. And as much as I want to, like, make fun of him... He wasn't wrong. The fingerprints on the letter did not match this error. They did, however, match a Kansas City con man named James W. Lewis. He was a he was familiar to local police because he had been arrested and served two years for tax fraud, and four years earlier he was charged with dismembering an elderly man who had hired him to do some accounting work. Police had found the man's mummified remains in James's attic, but the charges against James were dismissed. But why? Partly because the man's cause of death could not officially be determined by medical examiners, but mostly because a judge deemed that the police had never had the right to search James's home, which made everything that they found, including the mummified remains, unadmissible in court. Also, the police had never read James his Miranda rights. So this is one lucky SOB. But why had James framed the heir to Miller Brewing? Why had he not taken the money for himself? James and his wife Leanne knew the Miller Brewing heir and they didn't like him. Leanne had worked for him, and apparently while she had been working for him, she had received a couple of bounce checks, and Leanne had essentially worked for the heir for free because he couldn't get his ish together. It led her to waste a bunch of her time and have to find work elsewhere anyway. So basically, they wanted their revenge for providing an inconvenience and because he had sent them like some bounce checks, which is actually really pretty annoying, and I think that he should get in trouble for that, but certainly not accused of this crime. Um... So anyways, they wanted to get even with them, and this is how 
they decided to do that. So investigators began looking everywhere for James and Leanne, but they were nowhere to be found. A few weeks passed. Then in the last week of October, for reasons unknown, James reached out to the Chicago Tribune. James told them that he and his wife Leanne were not the Tylenol murderers and that they didn't have any weapons. So, clearly, I mean, James said he didn't do it, so, you know, let's just take his word for it and leave him and his lovely wife Leanne alone. Just kidding. Uh, They were able to determine that the letter came from New York City. Another week passed, no James. A month passed, no James. Finally, in December, James was arrested in a library in New York. Um, Apparently, he was like in one of those private rooms and he had all of these newspapers laid out on a table and he was like writing down people's names and locations, which is not sketchy at all. Uh, I have no idea. They didn't like go into any more information, but I just remember reading that and I was like, okay. Um, A week later, after James was arrested, his wife Leanne decided to turn herself in. Investigators were thrilled, however, James and Leanne denied writing the letters or having any involvement in the murders, which was obviously bullcrap because James's fingerprints matched the letter sent to Johnson & Johnson. Obviously, he had done the whole thing. And when I say the whole thing, the FBI was saying, obviously, he did the whole thing as in he wrote this letter and he's also the Tylenol murder. Except, maybe he and Leanne hadn't been a part of the Tylenol murders. They were living in New York at the time, and they both had incredibly strong alibis. They were both working, so the time cards proved that they could not have possibly committed these crimes. I mean, New York City and Chicago are pretty far apart. You would not be able to, like, go to work, come back. Like, it just wouldn't work out. James said to the police, listen, I'm not the Tylenol murderer. I'm just a dumb guy who tried to capitalize and get my revenge using the Tylenol murderer, which is stupid. James received a 20-year prison sentence for sending that letter to Johnson & Johnson, which is a pretty hefty sentence. During those 20 years, Johnson & Johnson re-released their Tylenol to the masses, but this time the bottles looked a little different and probably more up to par with what we are familiar with today. For starters, they had tamper-proof packaging, which can you imagine that not being a thing? I mean, this was the 80s, which if we're being honest, really was not very long ago. I know that I like to make fun of it, like it was like this long ago time period, but it really was just like 40 years ago. Um, So it's hard to imagine a time that having tamper-proof packaging would not be normal, but it wasn't long ago at all. I'm sure that if you asked a parent, they totally remember buying Tylenol with no packaging. It's so weird. Um, Tylenol also offered everyone a coupon to try Tylenol again. They also replaced their capsules with tablets, which are much more difficult to tamper and contaminate. Fairly quickly, people trusted Tylenol again due to the extreme measures and hits they had taken to earn the consumer's trust again. By the spring of 1983, the FBI had a ton of leads, but these leads were going nowhere. The Tylenol murder was still very much at large, but maybe it wasn't about catching the person or persons responsible. Maybe it was about taking the appropriate measures to ensure that this sort of thing never happened again. 
Congress took action. They created the Tylenol Bill, which officially made it a crime to tamper with consumer products with malicious intent, which, I mean, does that even need to be a law? This should be common sense and decency, but all right, never a bad thing to make something official, I suppose. In 1989, the FDA created federal guidelines that made it mandatory to have all pharmaceuticals tamper-proof. It's not all good news, though. For starters, this murderous terrorist has never been caught. Even worse, over the years, there have been an abhorrent number of inspired copycats. This resulted in at least three more murders that we know of. There certainly could be more out there. Which brings me back to the case that I referred to at the beginning of the episode, the one I thought I was researching, but it turns out was a completely different case entirely. That lady had remembered the Tylenol murders and had basically taken that method of killing to kill her husband and a couple of other innocent bystanders. In 1995, James Lewis, the prime suspect in this case, was released from prison. In 2007, apparently some anonymous tips came to police that pointed again to our dear friend James. What had dear old James been up to these last few years? Well, not much. Oh, unless you want to talk about that time in 2004 when he kidnapped and tortured a woman. Yeah, he was 62 years old and he was teaching this sweet, 32-year-old lady how to design her website. All of a sudden, and out of nowhere, he accused her of stealing website space, which is not at all a thing. He sprayed her in the face with chemicals, tied her to a bed, and did heinous things to her for 24 hours. I'm not going to get into it, but just terrible things. So James sat in jail for three years awaiting trial. Um... And on the day his trial was set to begin, the prosecutor dropped all charges because the victim was so anxious and so terrified that she refused to testify. At any rate, James was back out on the street. A lot of the FBI thought that they had had it right the first time. They 100% believe that just because they don't have enough evidence to convict James doesn't mean that James Lewis isn't absolutely the Tylenol murder. Maybe now with the advances in technology, they thought they could find enough to get him. They still had all of the old Tylenol bottles just sitting in evidence, and they did even have some partial prints. In 2009, they took James's computer and some stuff from his apartment. James and Leanne are weirdly still together, even after the 20-year sentence and the rape charge, which, come on, girl. Let's go to lunch because we need to build up your self-esteem and confidence. No, honey, no. So according to a friend of theirs, um, apparently Leanne and James did submit DNA samples, but nothing seems to have come from that. Um, The FBI also got a sample from the Unabomber at one point who happened to live in the Chicago area at the time, and they thought um, he might have been building up his brazenness through this Tylenol stunt, but nothing has come of that either to my knowledge. And believe you me, if they were at all connected, it would have been huge news and we certainly would have heard about it. So I'm going to say that they're probably not connected. Um, To this day, James and Leanne are living together in New England. 
Um, if you're feeling particularly bored, want to get put on a terrorist list, be tracked, or have your identity stolen, feel free to visit James Lewis's freakishly bizarre website. It's www.cyberlewis.com, and it is bananas. Um, he also has self-published a book called Poison, A Doctor's Dilemma. So if you need a book for your ladies next month's book club, well, there you go. Light reading for you. Um, it's a super old school website. It looks like it was made in like the early 2000s and yeah, he's just a freak. Uh, so that is the story of the unsolved mystery of the Chicago Tylenol murders. Oh boy, that was a doozy. And sorry for using the word doozy. We literally just watched Groundhog's Day last night. So doozy is fresh on the brain. Did you guys know about this case? If you didn't, ask a parent or a grandparent about it. I'm sure they remember everything. I just think it's crazy that there were just open bottles of stuff on shelves free for the contaminating. I mean, considering what I know about people, which is a lot, I'm quite observant, they are disgusting. Remember that girl from a few years ago who like licked the ice cream and put it back and even just barely at the start of this pandemic that idiot who was licking deodorant or something to get COVID-19 all over the place people are so stupid Brian and I talk about this all the time we always thought we've always thought that we were of like average intelligence but the more that we watch YouTube watch TikToks, watch Instagram reels, I think I can most humbly say that we are definitely of above average intelligence and so are you. Let me know your theories by commenting on the Instagram post I made today. Also, I will have a little quiz polling thing in my stories. You guys seem to have really enjoyed that last week, so I am going to keep it up. And join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed, or is the mystery still unsolved?